Welcome to a nonfiction story cast about people in Seattle who built churches and how they did it. I'm Cindy Safranoff. I'm the author, and this is Dedication, building the Seattle branches of Mary Baker Eddy's church, a centennial story. Episode 14, Temporary Structure. During the month of July 1909, while so many residents of Seattle were enjoying the cultural activities at the Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition, First Church was building their temporary structure. Members of their church community, men, women, and children, pitched in to help complete the project. One historical sketch later recounted, Women were seen on their knees nailing down strips of carpet in the aisle. Men were doing the rougher work. On August 1st, they held services at their new location. The local newspaper reported, The wanderings of First Church of Christ Scientist will cease today when the services will be held at 11 o'clock in the temporary structure erected within the walls of the proposed new church building at 16th Avenue and Denny Way, where they will be continued until the new building, to cost $100,000, is finished. Quickly built of wood over just a few weeks, the structure was referred to as our summer kitchen, by a visiting lecturer. The thin wooden walls did not provide the congregation with quiet, both as to the elements and passing traffic. Heated by an old-fashioned wood stove, it must have felt a bit like camping. When seasonal changes brought the long nights, frequent rain, and cold dampness, Characteristic of late autumn in the Pacific Northwest, they lost a few more members to Fourth Church. Autumn also brought the annual election meeting with its required rotation in office, resulting in several new members on the executive board. At the new board's first meeting on December 14th, with an unarticulated nod to Mrs. Baker, They made a conscious decision to work differently than the previous board. The board unanimously adopted a resolution. That it shall be the general policy of the directors in their deliberations in all matters pertaining to the welfare of this church, if there is not perfect unity of thought, if there is a dissenting vote, that we drop the question until a later meeting each one working metaphysically to bring out the sense of harmony, oneness, thereby securing demonstrated work for this church. The new board wanted to start building the permanent edifice as soon as possible. Their big problem was how to pay for its high cost. They still needed $80,000 to start building, more than 12 times the cost of their chapel on 6th Avenue. The board got to work on trying to find a way to move forward that would promote unity. 
The membership elected Edwin W. Craven to first reader, giving him the honor and the challenge of conducting Sunday services and Wednesday meetings for the next three years in the breezy temporary structure for which he had advocated. Serving with Craven as second reader was Miss Eugenia H. Deemer, a relatively new member from Pennsylvania and a new practitioner. Oliver McGilvra was unanimously re-elected president, so he would continue his leadership role at membership meetings. The following year, McGilvra would be elected chair of the board, the most powerful position in a Christian science church. Not long after this, Second Church, which had once been the recipient of leftover money from First Church's lecture fund, began to return the favor. On January 4, 1910, the Ballard Congregation began contributing to the building fund for First Church. Those members explained, Our membership is not large, yet we realize that the little we may do if given in love, and with the right thought, will be a help to our sister church in completing the edifice which is so much needed. Through this small gesture of charity, the Little Ballard Church expressed a welcome spirit of cooperation. The precedent they set would have a long-lasting result. But at this time, First Church was making comparatively slow progress on its edifice so much needed in Seattle. As far as church building, the other areas where Julia Field King had planted Christian science had borne much more fruit than Seattle, despite its earlier start. While they were building their temporary structure, the Christian Science Periodicals featured dedication services for a recently constructed edifice in London, a new and more expansive church home for First Church of Christ Scientist London. The previous edifice, the very first Christian Science Church in Europe, dedicated in November 1897, shortly after Mrs. Field King's arrival in London, was already outgrown. This new one, near Sloan Square, described as a vast white building with lofty arched roof and a long white sculptured gallery circling the wide auditorium, the beautiful organ towering upwards, cost $400,000, twice the price of the original Mother Church edifice in Boston. Likewise in St. Louis, Mrs. Field King's students' congregation had outgrown their 600-seat stone church on Pine Street, built for $35,000, and they had already completed and dedicated another much larger church on Westminster at King's Highway for $150,000. With seating for $1,200, it had been completed in time to serve the many visitors coming to St. Louis for its World Fair in 1904. Both the St. Louis and London churches were rewarded with dedicatory letters from Rev. Mary Baker Eddy for their significant church-building successes. 
Obviously, in Seattle, there was no grand new edifice for Christian science to impress visitors coming to the 1909 AYP Expo. There were no dedication announcements for the temporary structure on Capitol Hill. It was mentioned in the Christian science periodicals, but they received no congratulatory letters from Reverend Eddy. While the temporary structure was being constructed, the Seattle Times reported on Eddie's 88th birthday. The article clarified that Eddie did not think much of birthdays and that there were no special observances of the event in Boston or anywhere else. The article noted that she was in her usual good health, still following her usual daily routine, and still doing her usual work. For a woman of her age, the Seattle Times reported, she was remarkably vigorous and active. Notwithstanding the recent reports alleging her to be dead or very near to death, just before her birthday, a letter from Eddie was printed in the Christian Science Sentinel and also in part in the Seattle Times, denying that she was sick, incapacitated, or dead. In the years since the 1906 dedication of the Mother Church Extension, Reverend Eddie had received a lot of negative publicity. Humorous Mark Twain published a book ridiculing Christian Science and its leader. McClure's Magazine published a series of unflattering biographical articles. The New York World launched a series of highly critical articles, including claims that Eddie had died and people in her organization were hiding her death from the world for devious purposes. Eddie was, in fact, alive and well, a fact that was easy to prove. But this was not the last time such a report was published. Wild claims by newspapers were common in those days. They boosted profits. Eddie constantly had to deal with this type of public relations problem. It was this sort of thing that impelled her to launch her own newspaper in 1908, the Christian Science Monitor, to exemplify fair and accurate journalism. Its motto, to injure no man, but to bless all mankind. Along with the media attacks, a highly publicized legal battle was mounted against Eddie over control of her very substantial estate. Her opponents, which included several family members, sought to have Eddie declared mentally incompetent. From Eddie's perspective, the whole issue was fabricated for the purpose of discrediting Christian science and its founder. Eddie decisively won the legal battle. She also received positive publicity from Cosmopolitan and Arena magazines, among others, and a favorable biography from Sybil Wilbur. Meanwhile, she faced many other internal battles over control of her rapidly growing organization. Some of her students were leading rebellions or struggling to gain personal power. In Seattle, Although Alan H. Armstrong had no news of church dedication to share with his leader, he wanted to express his continuing loyalty to support and cheer her through her trials and tribulations, or perhaps in the hope of receiving a reply letter. In June 1910, his students sent a letter of gratitude to Eddie by telegraph. Again in October, 
Armstrong and his whole association of students from Washington telegraphed a message of love and loyalty. They did not receive any response from their extremely busy leader. As it was with the letter accompanying the gift package of Puget Sound salmon, Eddie's staff probably never showed her the telegraphs from Seattle. Nearly all of the Christian scientists in Seattle had never had any direct contact with Reverend Eddie. They had never received any letters from her or seen any public recognition that she even knew their branches existed. They could only find the personal connection with her that they seemed to desire through reading her published writings. They could read her Communion Sunday address from several years earlier, when Eddie briefly spoke from the balcony of her home in Concord, New Hampshire, to 10,000 visitors, a moment captured by a photographer for posterity. The address itself was published along with the remark that despite the open-air venue and total lack of any kind of amplification, Mrs. Eddy's strong, clear voice was distinctly heard even by those a long distance removed. Through the Christian Science periodicals, even those in Seattle could clearly receive her message. My beloved brethren, I have a secret to tell thee and a question to ask. Do you know how much I love you and the nature of this love? No? Then my sacred secret is incommunicable and we live apart. But, yes, and this inmost something becomes articulate and my book is not all you know of me. But your knowledge with its magnitude of meaning uncovers my life, even as your heart has discovered it. The spiritual bespeaks our temporal history, difficulty, abnegation, constant battle against the world, the flesh, and evil. Tell my long-kept secret, evidence a heart holy in protest and unutterable in love. The unprecedented progress of Christian science is proverbial, and we cannot be too grateful nor too humble for this, inasmuch as our daily lives serve to enhance or to stay its glory, to triumph in truth, to keep the faith individually and collectively. Conflicting elements must be mastered. Defeat need not follow victory, Joy over good achievements and work well done should not be eclipsed by some lost opportunity, some imperative demand not yet met. Truth, life, and love will never lose their claim on us. And here let me add, Truth happifies life in hamlet or town. Life lessens all pride its pomp and its frown. Love comes to our tears like soft summer shower to beautify, bless, and inspire man's power. With everlasting love, Mary Baker G. Eddy. Thanks for listening to Dedication by me, Cindy Safranoff 
All events and characters in this story are as true and accurate as the available sources. All opinions are mine. To support and learn more about this groundbreaking research project and read my writing, visit cindysafranoff.com.